Listener Production. Recently, as treasurer now, I'm having to finance a response to the worst floods we've ever seen. So what the scientists have been telling us for a generation, we're living it today and it has real financial and economic consequences for our state. How do we reduce our impact on those natural weather events and how do we protect people and property? So that's a big challenge and it has some big economic costs. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, The Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer, and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the phrase, but giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff, which is exactly what we try and do here on the podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, experts, and executives, the people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. And today's guest is both of those things. In fact, he's at the middle of making it happen in his state of New South Wales, where I'm also based, where he's the treasurer and deputy leader of the New South Wales Parliamentary Liberal Party. Now, I'll introduce him using the bio on his website, because this does a really good job of setting out Matt Keane, who I'm going to speak with, his background. Matt Keane entered Parliament in 2011, spent his early years advocating for stronger mental health policy, elevated to New South Wales Cabinet in 2017, He was appointed Minister for Innovation and Better Regulation. In 2019, he was appointed Minister for Energy and the Environment, and he's now the New South Wales Treasurer. Now, what I'm interested in is this little bit of his bio, an outspoken critic of climate denialism. He campaigned for greater national action on climate change, particularly in the wake of the 2019-2020 bushfires, championing a more progressive set of energy and climate policies in the Liberal Party. He's argued that the centre of Australian politics needs to reclaim its voice in the political debate. That's a fascinating starting point. And of course, we should say, he's right in the middle of that re-election campaign. And I really appreciate, Matt, spending a bit of time to join us on The Good Oil. Matt, welcome to The Good Oil. Scott, what a great introduction. I couldn't have written it better myself. No, in fact, I probably I did. It's on my website. You probably did, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice when someone quotes your words back to you, isn't it? I think so, particularly when they're nice. <laughs> <laughs> now, mate, you have, you have spared us some time. I really appreciate it. I'm going to... So I, I appreciate mate, you I'm, giving me a break from the election campaign. Campaign. This is great. <laughs> well, I'm going I'm to start with the, the term Dorothy Dixer comes from politics, mate. So I'm going to start with that. I'm going to give you the opportunity once off. Hopefully, let's get this out of the way. <laughs> tell, tell me why should the people of New South Wales re-elect the Liberal National Coalition at the upcoming election? Well, um, obviously, I'm very objective on this point. But, um, you know, I think it's only a Liberal Nationals government that can steer the economy through these uncertain times. Uh, we'll do that by growing the economy, by reducing pressure on household budgets, investing in frontline services and building a better future for everyone in our state. We'll keep New South Wales moving forward with our long-term economic plan. And since coming to office, we inherited Labor's $30 billion infrastructure backlog. Uh, But in that time, we've built a $178 billion worth of infrastructure, roads, schools, hospitals, rail, the stuff we'd missed out on for years under Labor's neglect. And uh, we've got a plan to build another $116 billion worth of infrastructure that includes new metros, new motorways, new hospitals and new schools. So, um, you know, uh, we're moving the state forward. We've got a long-term economic plan to deliver it. And the reason I got into politics is because I want to build a better future for everyone in our state. And um, I want to keep making that happen. Very good. All right, that's the politics out of the way, mate. <laughs> I've, I've, there, there's your free kick. Um, mate, I, I do want to chat about it. So look, 
I, I am, I've got to say, I, I'm a voter who's voted for different parties at different elections over the past few years. I, I, I carry no particular political colours here. Um, but I have been, I'm happy to say to you, I have been impressed by what I've seen from you both in public life and particularly on Twitter and other places. And that's frankly how I first started following you was, was through your Twitter profile. Um, so I am fascinated in having this conversation for the reasons you've already talked about. But as we get into it, mate, I guess let's talk about 2023. Um, it's a I'll say interesting in the in the sense of the old Chinese proverb of living in interesting times. It's an interesting year. It's an uncertain year for New South Wales, for Australia, and obviously globally. Um, given your very, um, you know, both privileged and, and, and powerful position as New South Wales Treasurer, what is your take on, on how things are placed for, for the state and for the country? Well, um, I thought you liked me all this time because we had the same haircut, Scott. Because, you know, here <laughs> or lack thereof. <laughs> that's it, that's it. Um, look, I mean, there's no point mincing words here. The geopolitical landscape is the most volatile that we've faced since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, the aftershocks of the pandemic continue to reverberate through global supply chains and businesses are really struggling to find staff and are facing, you know, really steep cost escalations in a whole range of things because of supply chain constraints, capacity constraints we're seeing in the market. I mean, Putin's illegal invasion of the Ukraine has has cut the international supply of the fuels that we still rely on to power the world, increasing firefold the price of coal, oil and gas. And climate change has really begin, begun to give us a taste of the destructive consequences of a warming planet. So, you know, these monumental forces have combined to see inflation reach the highest level uh, that we've seen in over a generation, I think in something like 30 years, Scott, um, you know, not just here at home, but right across the globe. So there are certainly challenges that we have in our state. Um, we've got a trifecta of unprecedented floods, pressures on our health system and inflation at this time. Um, the RBA has signalled that there are more rate rises to come that we know will hurt families. Um, uh, but, you know, there are some good things in the economy at the moment. You know, unemployment is at the lowest it's ever been here in this state. Uh, that means if you want a job, you can get a job. Um, we've got, um, uh, we've got uh, you know, uh, opportunities that increase participation rate of women, for example. It's the highest. We've just seen the highest participation rates of women in the economy. That's a great thing because we want to make sure everyone has the opportunity to get the benefits out of this state of New South Wales, regardless of your gender. That, that's a good thing. But... You know, we know that we need to ensure that we continue to deliver strong economic uh, uh, plans for New South Wales to keep the economy growing, a plan to help more people be able to participate in the economy, to bust inflation at its roots and to keep driving this state forward. Nice. Mate, I want to go back, I want to go back a, a, not that far. You're not, you're not an old man. You're a young man. So let, let's go back a little bit. I just bit. look at Scott. <laughs> no, no, no. I've seen your bio, mate. You're younger than me and <laughs> listeners of my podcast will know I, I generally hate people with a passion who are younger than me because they've got more time on, on, their, on their side than I do. Uh, but uh, but let's, let's put that aside for a second. How did you get into politics, mate? How, how do you kind of go from, hey, I think there's something here to I want to be involved to actually maybe a parliamentary career is for me? Oh, well, I'm clearly mad. That's the first <laughs> thing, Scott. Um, exactly. Almost by definition, sure. Look, I, I mean, I'd always been interested in current affairs. Um, I, you know, I, di I didn't come from a political household or anything. Mum was a teacher. Dad was a public servant, as it turns out. But we'd always discuss events in the local community, encouraged to read newspapers and stuff. So I guess I had an interest in and, you know, the community for, from a young age. And um, I actually got involved uh, in a local resident action group because there's a big development happening in the street where I grew up on. In fact, my dad started a resident action group and 
um, got involved in, you know, uh, speaking up for my community to protect the natural environment, went down and lobbied the council and was able to successfully um, stop, I, I guess, uh, what would have been a very destructive development for our community. And that showed me the power of getting involved in the political process. And I guess one thing led to another. I met some people and was encouraged to end up joining the Liberal Party. So um, the rest is history. <laughs> it is. Can I, can I take you back to that? Because that description, uh, mum's a teacher, dad's a public servant, I was campaigning against a development, that, that, that puts you as a, you know, <laughs> generally speaking, in the Labor Party. Right? If, if I was to say to somebody, here's the background of this politician, which party do they represent? They would have said, well, obviously Labor. Now, again, stereotypes aren't very useful, but that, that would have been the case. And I guess it's also true, I think, to, to say that, at least from the outside, you have seemed to be a modernising force, a modernising voice in, in the Liberal Party. Um, so I guess I guess a double barrel question, mate. Why why the Liberal Party, and how hard have you had to fight to be that kind of modernising <laughs> voice? At least from the outside, that's certainly the appearance. If it's not true, by the way, tell me. But that seems to be your your role and a bit of your history. Um, well, I think I'm certainly uh, in the right place that aligns with mm-hmm. my political views. I think the Liberal Party's at, at its best when it's fighting for the values of opportunity, of enterprise, of freedom, and prosperity, and um, you know, the Liberal Party fighting for those values means that our state is strong and our country is strong. And I think, you know, uh, you know, the Liberal Party should believe that in an Australia where every person, um, you know, enjoys the opportunity to be their best and build a better life for themselves and their family, no matter what their gender is, the colour of their skin, the God they choose to worship or the person they choose to love. That's a very liberal philosophy. So from that perspective, that was my natural home. Um, you know, we should believe in the Liberal Party's at its best when it believes in an Australia where uh, our liberties, the rule of law and democracy are never taken for granted and never taken away and believe in a, um, in a philosophy that ensures that we hand the planet or we hand, you know, the economy to the next generation better than we found it. That is the, at the heart of liberalism and I, I, that's why I'm very comfortable on that side of politics, um, you know, for generations, liberals have taken up those values to meet the challenges of their times. And I feel I'm applying those values to the challenges of our times. Take climate, the environment, um, you know, that idea that we should hand our planet to our kids better than we found it, it should be totally in line with the values of Menzies. And that's what I feel I've been fighting for. I was going to ask you that next, actually, because I, I think I probably recognise or, or noticed you as Environment Minister in what was probably one of the more progressive Environment Ministers on your side of politics. I think it's fair to say, and again, I don't want to badmouth anybody else. I'm not here to to, to draw you know, to put wedges in place or, or, or draw lines necessarily, but at a time when other others on the right weren't maybe as strong or as clear as you have been on on the environmental challenges and solutions. And I think probably also choose pragmatic solutions. You, you've seemed to have at least, again, from a public perspective a sense of that the environment is important and we can do it in a responsible way. I'm, I'm more, I don't want to call you centrist again. I, these kind of political terms are loaded. No one to put words in your mouth or, or give your opponents reasons to kick you or, or, or find opportunity or find objections. But, you know, you, you have been one of the more progressive, and even progressive, I suppose, is a loaded political term. What's, what's driven that environmental thinking, mate, and how have you managed to square that with maybe some of your uh, less smaller liberal colleagues or maybe others in different states who had different views from your side of politics? Um, well, as I talked about, um, you know, I think the Liberal Party is at its best when we represent those values of freedom, enterprise, opportunity and prosperity. And 
um, they guide our vision. And where we draw, we should be drawing on the latest science, engineering, evidence and human thought to develop our policies. So I think that's what I've tried to do. I'm someone that joined the party because I believe in free markets and private enterprise is the best way uh, to ensure prosperity for our nation. Um, and I guess all, I think the best way to understand how I fit into the spectrum is that I represent a new generation of Liberals uh, that is applying those values um, to the challenges of our time. Now, my generation uh, has different challenges and different concerns of my parents' generation, for example. My partner and I, um, you know, we both work and, uh, you know, raise a family, uh, whereas my parents' generation, uh, my dad was the breadwinner and my mum stayed at home. So that creates different opportunities but different pressures and that's why I was so passionate about fighting for the five billion dollar investment in affordable and accessible childcare because you know my partner and I um, we were able to make Wendy my partner was able to make the choice to have a family and have a career but unfortunately for too many women that choice is made for them so rolling out childcare I see as a very liberal idea because it gives people more choices and more opportunities to participate in the economy. Uh, that's on the economic side. On the environment side, I mean, you know, what could be more liberal than ensuring that, you know, our kids are able to enjoy the natural environment uh, and that in protecting the natural environment, we're also able to grow our prosperity. And we know that as the world is moving to uh, a lower carbon future, uh, that will create risks to Australia. There's no doubt about it. But there are just these enormous opportunities to grab. So if we get, put the right policy settings in place, there's no reason why we can't be an economic superpower of the future. And that's, that's my vision and I'm chasing it. I'm not sure whether it's a poison chalice or not. For a while, you were the energy minister and the environment minister. And I got to figure that on one level, that's really, really, really obviously the right thing, right? Because to your point, we've got those combined challenges of you know, energy uh, reliability, prices. But at the same time, those are the very things, or at least the old style, old school production of energy was the very thing that was threatening the environment. Uh, on one hand, it's, a, it's an inenviable, unenviable responsibility to try and balance both those, not make anybody happy, but trying to make both happy at the same time. On the other hand, as I said, I think it's the perfect combination of holding that internal tension so that you're not having two people fight across the, the party room and say, well, I want that, yeah, but I want that, and I'm going to be unpopular, well, you have to be unpopular. How did you how did you think about holding both of those portfolios together, and how did you square that circle for yourself and and for the government? Well, Scott, I didn't initially. Um, in fact, I'd been the innovation minister for New South Wales, and when Gladys Berejiklian won the twenty nineteen election, she called me to her office, and she sat me down. And she said, "I'd like you to be the energy and environment minister," and I thought. Gladys, I'm your most loyal ally. I've, I've been your numbers man. I'm like I've been absolutely devoted. Why? What did I do to upset you? Yeah, yeah. Why are you giving me this like difficult task? But um, on reflection now, I'm so glad that she did. And she very deliberately combined those portfolios because, um, you know, the movement towards sustainability, this is not, you know, a a domestic movement. This is an international movement. The movement towards a low carbon future is an international movement. This is a global megatrend that's not going anywhere um, for the next you know, 50 years at least. Um, the world is moving to net zero. In fact, 90% of Australia's two-way trade is now with countries that have committed to net zero emissions. So I think that combining energy and environment 
uh, were two like like very it was a very sensible approach because the task she gave me was to make sure we're doing our bit to protect our environment but in ways that are also going to grow the economy so we had to think about how we would approach that and fortunately we're at a time in human history where you know there are many parts of the economy where you can be good for the environment and get better outcomes for consumers businesses and the nation take for example energy um, right now we rely on uh, you know, five coal-fired power stations across New South Wales to provide the bulk of our electricity. And they've been very reliable um, ways of powering our economy for uh, over a generation. Uh, but they're coming to the end of their technical life and they need to be replaced. They're becoming less reliable um, and we need to build new sources of generation. And the technology to replace them today, it's not the same as what we've relied on in the past. There are new ways to provide electrons into the electricity grid that also happen to be clean, but can also deliver some of the cheapest and most reliable energy as well. So in modernising our electricity system, we're also protecting our planet and protecting household bills. So I guess the philosophy we took or my approach to addressing some of these challenges is where you can do good things for the environment and also create jobs and lower household bills and grow the economy. We should be doing that and rolling out those technologies at scale, take the electricity system. And where we haven't, you know, solved uh, the, the problem for how we decarbonise a section of the economy, we should be investing heavily in R&D. That's, I mean, it seems pretty straightforward, but it's worked. <laughs> so, so, Matt, again, without being political, that, that's a perfectly understandable answer. I, I, I struggle to disagree with you. So why do people disagree with you? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, if you're, if you're the, the now treasurer, the then environment and energy minister, you're saying, hey, here's the, here's the path. How is it that we are still having these arguments, discussions, uh, disagreements? Why are there so many roadblocks to, to these sorts of changes being made? I think, um, you know, energy policy, for example, is very complex. Um, most people don't have the time to sit and read engineering reports and they don't have the benefit of being briefed by economists and uh, you know, experts and, you know, physicists and stuff like that, like I've got at my disposal. Um, I'm not saying I'm always right by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, I've, I feel like for the last four years of my life, I've done nothing but, you know, get my head around the energy system. And, and the conclusion I drew was that energy should all be about economics and engineering, not ideology. And for too long, ideology has been in the middle of energy policy and environment policy and climate policy. And all I've tried to do is remove ideology and let's focus on practical solutions that will get better economic outcomes for families and businesses and also protect our environment. Where we can do both, we should. I find it hard to believe people are against that, but there you go. Mate, um, <laughs> let, let's move forward then. You're now, you're now treasurer. Apparently, apparently okay. it's woke to think like that. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand that, but like, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th I think it's economically <laughs> rational, personally. It seems like it, right? And also protects the environment. Everyone's happy. It's, a, it's, it's strange to... Uh, a win, a, objecting to a win-win outcome is, is, a, is a strange political position to take. Anyway, let's let's move on. Mate, so you are treasurer now. Um, obviously, a, a massive responsibility. You're also the, the New South Wales Deputy Liberal Leader, as I said. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges you think and opportunities, financially speaking, facing New South Wales as we kind of go into the rest of 2023 and beyond? Big challenges for us in New South Wales, 2023 and beyond. Obviously, um, unprecedented natural weather events that we've been seeing. I mean, you know, in the last five years, Scott, I mean, since I've taken on this portfolio, I've had the worst drought in the country's history, the worst bushfires that we've ever seen. 
And uh, recently as treasurer now, I'm having to finance a response to the worst floods we've ever seen. So what the scientists have been telling us for a generation, um, that's not something happening in the future. We're living it today and it has real financial and economic consequences for our state. So, um, you know, this is a huge challenge. How do we protect communities that are becoming increasingly exposed to the impacts of climate change? Uh, How do we reduce, you know, our impact on uh, those natural weather events? Uh, So how do we do mitigation? How do we do adaptation? And how do we protect people and property? So that's a big challenge and it has some big economic costs. So that's a huge challenge. Um, Obviously, the health system is under enormous pressure, although we've come through the worst health and economic shock that we've ever seen, COVID-19, it's still reverberating through the health system. So um, just because most people are going about their lives and, um, you know, have forgotten that period of history, we're still seeing way more presentations to our health departments. We're still seeing a lot of our health workers needing time off because they're more exposed to COVID. Uh, So that's coming at a huge cost to the taxpayer and to the state of New South Wales. And I think also the global challenge of inflation, yes, largely driven by the war in Ukraine, but again, a global uh, challenge that we're dealing with um, that um, central banks around the world are trying to take on. And that is you know, hitting not only families that are, you know, have mortgages and things like that, but also governments, the cost of our borrowing, for example, that's underwriting the financing of a lot of our infrastructure is going up. Um, and again, we need to find the headroom to be able to pay for it. So, you know, they're the challenges that I worry about as the treasurer of New South Wales, but I think there are also enormous opportunities for our state. I mean, you know, take the climate opportunity, for example, you know, by decarbonising our electricity system, it means that we're not only providing the cheapest and most reliable energy to our families and businesses, but also the cleanest, which gives our heavy industry a competitive advantage. So we've seen, you know, for generations, manufacturing heavy industry going offshore because we don't have a competitive advantage. All of a sudden, uh, we're well placed to win the race um, uh, of the future and see manufacturing coming back onshore and we're putting ourselves in a position to grab that opportunity. That means more jobs, more investment, and a new era of economic prosperity and opportunity that we've never seen before. Um, Take, for example, opportunities for more people to benefit from the economy. We've just rolled out our $5 billion affordable and accessible childcare fund, and that will see more than 95,000 more women every single year be able to take on more hours, stay and work, and participate in the economy. And you know, that's, that's not just the right social policy um, because, you know, everyone should have the opportunity to participate in our economy and reach their dreams regardless of their gender, but it's the right economic policy. They'll deliver a dividend to this state of around $17 billion a year in increasing the size of the economy. So, again, great opportunity for New South Wales to be even more prosperous. Uh, you know, we're providing opportunities for young people to own their first home. Um, we've just done tax reform, which will enable people to choose between paying an upfront stamp duty or paying an annual fee. And, you know, our policy will give people the chance of shaving up to two years off the time it takes to save for a deposit. So there are some exciting things happening in this state. And, you know, I'm really proud and honoured to have the opportunity to be 
uh, in the driver's seat for the time being. We'll see what happens in 38 days, but who knows? <laughs> but who's counting, right? All right, enough, enough of the campaigning. A couple, a couple of uh, a couple of tough questions, mate, or some questions that were just challenged, I suppose, in a, in a polite and respectful way. Uh, I want to talk to you about the land tax stamp duty thing. Uh, the uh, so I, I a couple of couple of maybe uh, challenges for you. Uh, first one, my mother is uh, has been in her house now for 45 odd years. If she was to buy that house today under the uh, the choice of stamp duty or, or land tax and said, well, you know, I'll take the cheaper land tax, I'll, I'll get in my house quickly, she would have spent 45 years paying that, that annual land tax rather than what would have ended up being a cheaper upfront stamp duty. The other challenge, I suppose, is just the one of, you know, the savings are impressive, but they end up being capitalised, arguably, just into house prices. And so while it looks like a saving up front, you know, that, that money can effectively be put into pushing up prices at a time when housing is probably less affordable than it's been in years, particularly at higher interest rates. You're not responsible for the rates, to be fair. Um, but just just your thoughts on that, mate. I, I got to say, I, I'm, I'm, I don't love stamp duty either. And you've got to pay your bills one way or the other. So I get why you're making that choice. But I, I do worry that, that the land tax thing seems attractive up front, but may end up costing more in the long term on those two bases. Well, look, we've limited the ability to choose between paying stamp duty or land tax to a certain cohort of the market. So first home buyers, and they're the ones that need the most help. Um, you know, it's for properties valued up to $1.5 million and what it could mean on a property worth around $800,000. And don't quote me on these figures, but it's the difference between about, you know, paying around, you know, $38,000 in stamp duty and around $1,800 in an annual fee. Now, most people's first home is not their forever home. And I think that's a key point. Um, most first home buyers will own their uh, property for about 10 years before you know, upgrading. This is just our policy that will lower that barrier to entry into the housing market. And our data shows that it will help people shave up to two years off the time it takes to save for a deposit, thus getting in, into their own home much sooner. And, you know, that's a good thing. We're putting our policy out there for people to decide whether they like that or um, Labor want to keep the stamp duty so people will have the choice at the ballot box. <laughs> I like it, uh, mate. Uh, the last one on, on policy. Uh, when uh, your, your predecessor as, as treasurer, now now premier, Don Perrottet, uh, talked originally about potentially New South Wales borrowing at, at what were then historically very low rates to make investments, to kind of use the opportunity to to borrow, as I said, at historically low rates, and frankly, as a government instrumentality, at, you know, uh, close enough to zero to not not you know to, to not, not worry about it. That just seemed to be pretty smart overall, right? If you could um, if you could borrow it at you know cheapest chips and then invest in something that's going to earn you more. That felt to me like a pretty good strategy. I don't know if you have a view on that, but I'm curious as to why the government as, as a whole didn't proceed with that with that idea. Well, I don't think the then treasurer at the time, my boss, Dominic Perrottet, um, foresaw COVID, um, you know, and and at the time, states finances were in a very strong position. Um, you know, we'd paid down our debt. Uh, we'd, you know, we're, the economy was roaring and uh, we were delivering strong surpluses, but then we were hit by... COVID hit by bushfires, hit by floods, and we're in a very different financial position than we were before that. You know, we used our balance sheet and our financial firepower to stand by the people of this state when they needed us to. Now the focus will be on repairing the state's finances. So, you know, we're ready to handle whatever the future may throw at us. Makes sense. Mate, let's, uh, we only got a limited, limited amount of time. Let's finish with our four favourite quick questions. I have a, I have, I've been warned by your staff about the answer to this first question, so I'll see whether they were right or not. Uh, what are you reading or watching at the moment? I know you're obviously, you're obviously you know, neck deep in financial statements, but when you get a chance to spend a little bit of time not reading government briefing papers, what are you, what are you spending your uh, reading and watching time listening to or, or watching? Uh, so I am watching 
this this series that I'm just obsessed with at the moment. In fact, I I, I count out every week till a new episode is released, and that's The Last of Us, which is on on binge on a Foxtel. That was exactly the one I was suggesting. You might be uh, you might be keen oh, on. So your staff know level. you well. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's not good for my stress levels, but it is it is <laughs> okay. great TV, and um, I try to keep up with the latest political books, um, no matter you know who's written them or, um, you know, uh, which which side they're focused on. But I just am finishing off Bulldozed by Nikki Sabah, okay, um, which was you know yeah. about the last federal election campaign, which was pretty fascinating. Yeah. Hey, can I ask you one uh, without without notice? Actually, uh, I'll, I'll get back to our favourite questions. Who's your political hero? My political hero, uh, I love John F. Kennedy. And I love John F. Kennedy because, you know, he was a leader that had a vision for the type of country America could be. And he worked to bring about, I guess, effectively the modernisation of America. So it went from, you know, the war generation to a new generation. And I see, you know, I greatly admire his vision for what was possible for America, his courage uh, to make it happen, and his ambition for what was possible. And I guess they're sort of my North Stars when I'm thinking about, you know, how I want to, you know, um, make a contribution to New South Wales. That is super cool. All right, back to our, back to our usual questions. Um, obviously, trends, economic trends in particular, are grabbing your attention, but what trends are you keeping an eye on? What's fascinating to you about what's changing around the world or in the state? I think for me, there's a couple of things. So obviously, the transition to a net zero economy, because you know, as a small open market economy like Australia, our future is going to be determined by global events. So making sure that, you know, we're not being left behind, but we're at the front of the curve to take advantage of these opportunities. The second thing is obviously global inflation. So, um, you know, what's happening in supply chains, what's happening in China uh, with their COVID policy that's flowing through to demand and supply of goods and services, uh, that will have a huge impact on Australia. And um, yeah, the other one is energy prices. The, the war in Ukraine, uh, that's had a, an absolutely catastrophic impact on wholesale prices for gas and coal. Uh, that's flowing through to our wholesale electricity prices here. And, you know, families are doing tough at the moment because of rising interest rates, but they're doing tougher because of an illegal war in Ukraine, which is flowing through to the bills they're paying to get their power. Yeah, it's a br- brutal regime and a, and a brutal combination economically. Mate, tell, what, what advice would you give someone who's interested in entering politics? Good idea, bad idea. How, how do they make their way in the political world? Well, they should run, run <laughs> and run very fast. No, I, I mean, I, I say that jokingly. Look, it is a hard job, but it's also an amazing job. I mean, what other role could you have where you could have a positive influence on the direction of the country? Um, uh, you know, you can fight to make the place better than you found it. And I think, you know, it is a great honour to have the opportunity to serve a community, to serve a state and to try and fight to make it better. And we need more good people that want to do good things for our country getting involved in the public discussion, um, no matter what side of politics uh, they're in. Hopefully some more good people can help uh, me on my side of politics, but I don't care what your politics are, just get involved in the debate so we can make our country even better. I like that, mate. I'm going to finish with my, my favourite question. I'm going to assume if you're in politics, you've got to be optimistic. You've got to be uh, in there to make a difference and believe that difference can be made. So, mate, my last question, Matt Keane, what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic that Australia's best days are still ahead of it. I think there are enormous opportunities opening up. I think we can be one of the most prosperous nations on the planet. 
by embracing the opportunities that the transition to a net global economy are going to present. I think because we've got a natural competitive advantage in producing clean, cheap and reliable energy, that means we'll have a competitive advantage in not only powering the rest of the world, but also providing the materials that the rest of the world is going to need to meet their objectives when it comes to decarbonising their economies. That means just mind-boggling investment, thousands and thousands and thousands of new jobs and economic prosperity like our parents and their parents and their parents could only ever dream of. I think that's a very nice way to finish. New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane, thank you for joining me for The Good Oil. Scott, thank you so much. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden and imaged by Link Kelly.